This is the Final Fix Podcast. This is just real people having real conversations surrounding substance abuse and the way addiction impacts communities. We're three brothers who have experienced addiction through a family member. We each have unique perspectives to the same situation, and as we have healed through discussing, we want to share our experience and speak with others who have been affected by substance abuse. Our goal with this podcast is to spread awareness of the harm of substance abuse. To talk to real people about their experience and how they've healed and to learn more about the role that substance abuse plays in communities and families. We are not experts, just brothers who have had our own experiences around addiction and want to help others by facilitating conversations. Please be aware that some of these conversations may be difficult and triggering. Any episodes of feature adult content will be labeled as explicit and may not be appropriate for children. This is the Final Fix podcast. We are back. We have a special guest today. Jonathan is with us. Um, He's got an incredible story. He's doing a lot to continue to uh, heal, work on the recovery, and give back. Uh, so that's something that I'm really excited to talk about is the uh, the portion of recovery that is turning around and helping those, lifting those up, uh, coming behind you that are going down this terrible path. So, um, or great path into recovery from a ter- terrible path. So, uh, yeah, without further ado, man, uh, welcome. Thank you for being here. Uh, if you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and yeah. Awesome. Thanks guys. I appreciate it. Uh, my name is Jonathan. I'm from Connecticut, uh, Brookfield, Connecticut. I'm 33 years old right now. Uh, my sobriety date is March 3rd, 2019. So I'm going on four years of sobriety or five years of sobriety while wow, it goes fast. Um, and yeah, I mean, I grew up, I grew up here in Connecticut. Um, I was born and raised in a town next to it, a city, Danbury, uh, about middle school. I moved over to Brookfield. I had my two parents for my life, little brother, uh, very status quo growing up childhood. Um, I grew up playing baseball, going to church, parents would pray with us before we went to night, uh, at night before we went to bed. And, um, you know, my life was just about baseball, friends, family parties, really just like uh, I didn't have a lot to complain about. Um, I was very faithful. God was in my life. I wouldn't say I was a like big cod pusher kid, but, you know, we were at church around uh, Sundays. We were at church. Um, we had CCD. Like I said, we prayed at night. Um, I had a lot of faith, a lot of just high energy kid. Definitely ADHD showed early on. I was the one running around in family videos screaming like a madman, like I was already on drugs. Um, and that played well into sport. Uh, I saw like a lot of, uh, a lot of the good addict tendencies when I was younger. Um, baseball was my dream. Derek Jeter was my idol. Since I was a kid, I was going to make it to the Yankees. I live, grew up 50 minutes from Yankee Stadium um, in the dynasty of the 90s of the Yankees. So that was my life. Um, I played travel teams. I played local teams, high school teams. And you could see my addict tendencies. I mean, even the rain and snow, my parents would look out back and I'd be like throwing off this pitch back thing, like hitting ground balls, practicing, just obsessive, like a true addict. Um, but I use it into good things like that and outlets. Um, always positive. Like I said, all, all my friends' parents had good things to say about me. I had good grades. Teachers loved me. Um, and then uh, things started to change probably right before high school. I was in eighth grade, 13 years old. And uh, we were playing paintball in the quarry in the woods in the neighborhood, and uh, in my neighborhood. And we always had two parents, probably 20 kids, and two parents that would chaperone us. Um, and this is kind of where you see my story go from light to dark, I like to say. Um, I think a lot of addicts have 
kind of a turning point in their life that they don't talk about. Some talk about it, but I mean, obviously, if you're in active addiction, you know, I didn't want to talk about it. And uh, we were 13 years old playing paintball, and we were walking back in between games to our, like, separate bases. And one dad was on each team, and I just remember uh, my friend Andrew's dad fell. And, you know, we thought he tripped, so I, I think like, even some people were like, ha-ha, whatever. And then, uh, you know, to find out that later on, you know, right there he passed away in front of us, and it was like – I don't know, third, fourth heart attack. So they said he was dead on scene. And uh, as a kid, you know, that's obviously, without saying, it's a lot to go through. Um, the kid that once was just like, woohoo, I'm going to be the next Derek Jeter, family parties, little girlfriends, you know what I mean? Um, kind of had life hit me in the face. Um, I, I really didn't have anything before that that I had to to see, you know? And I think maybe as a child, I had a, face, a, a fake faith almost um, just about God and what, what I really believed in, you know. Was that your your very first experience with death? Yeah, that was. A, I really didn't have anyone die before then. All my grandparents were alive. Great grandparents were alive at that time. That's yeah. I mean, it's one thing to have like somebody that's old, older that I don't want to say you expect is going to die, but you you're more aware of that than have somebody who's you know that I can see that being like, okay, that's my friend's dad that could have been my dad and then like the, all of that starts to happen and it's like when people die that are not of you know quote unquote an age that should die like you it's it's such a tough thing to wrestle with and in yeah. that manner that yeah. is that yeah. is unbelievable yeah and that was, that was the first real traumatic thing um you know like you said exactly that actually touches on my whole talk about later probably but fear um fueled my addiction you know Right away, that's when I lost faith. Uh, I started to think, like, is my dad going to die? Am I going to die? Like, you know, you said that you're a kid and everything's fun. And then all something that traumatic, it wasn't like a gradual watch my grandpa, old grandpa die and then question it. It was like, we're playing paintball. And then I was like, oh, my God. So uh, right away, I, I think there was a little PTSD, probably anxiety that set in. Uh, you know, things that I didn't know at the time. So for sure. But uh, yeah, so then it just went on uh, that night. You know, I wrote in my book that uh, my parents kept asking me how it was. I don't think I cried. Maybe I cried for a minute. And I remember it was only out of feeling bad for my friend. I was watching him break down. Um, but I had this weird thing of, I don't know if it was how I was raised in my house and how my parents were raised. But like, uh, or if I was just blessed at a really good child for a while, like nothing ever was wrong. So I felt like I shouldn't show, you know, those tears. I knew my parents were going to be worried. Um so yeah, it just set in, set in, and then uh, you know, and even as a kid, nine eleven happened. So things were just starting to happen. That was like, what's really going on in this world? You know, you have to question a lot. So uh, yeah, and then uh, that's about thirteen. So by the time I was a sophomore, two years later, uh, my grades were, were failing. They're starting to like one by one. You'd see like one class had an F, all other were A, then two had a D and an F, and then yeah. this ridiculous anger. Um, you know, you could just see the. It, addiction building uh, if my parents said i couldn't go to a sleepover i was ripping a door off the wall and putting my head through it uh, i stopped praying from the day that i saw him pass away i think that's a big part of my story uh, i think everyone has a different type of faith that we talk about later but that was a uh, a different monumental change in my life at that point so uh yeah that anger came out um any anyone my brother my friends anyone that did something that i didn't feel in control of there was a rage of anger. Um, you know, my friends tried to like not invite me somewhere, you know, stupid kid stuff. 
but I felt like, oh, no, not again. It's happening. And uh, yeah. like I said, I still try to stay with baseball in my dream. Uh, I was already playing in colleges and stuff. And my freshman year, I went one day to a girl's house and we were jumping on a trampoline and my friend like double bounced me and I was like getting like the second story window. I was high and I came down sideways and she didn't have the plastic rubber covering. And I landed on my ribs on the metal and uh, long story short, ended up in the ICU for a week and ruptured my spleen, uh, which was obviously, you know, a traumatic incident. Again, I'm a 13 year old, 14 year old on an ER bed. My mom's crying because she's in nursing school and they're saying I'm bleeding internally. So she's crying like I'm about to die. And I'm just reacting off the doctor and her reaction. Like, yeah. Like knew something was gonna happen. Like you said, that fear, you know. Um, yeah. So I'm like, yeah, I knew it. Something bad again was gonna happen, and uh, I was in the ICU for a week. They let my heel, my sp- my spleen heal, and um, had to drop out of my entire freshman year of baseball. Um, and a week later, my entire throat closed, and I was rushed back to the ER. Spent another week in the hospital. And ended up being mono, and I was a day, a morning away from him giving me like a tracheotomy or whatever they call it, because my throat would not go down. Uh, so just a lot of feelings of obstacles, um, you know, kind of like yeah. no obstacles to like write a book on obstacles. Uh, that's just the beginning yeah. of it. But, uh, but yeah, uh, the uh, the control thing, like, is such a um, powerful motivator or demotivator. Like the when you see something like that, like you said PTSD you probably you probably did have ptsd no you did like <laughs> that's to see something like that and not know how to process it i mean that's 90 percent of the issue with ptsd is understanding how to process it and your parents like did what they could when asking you if you're okay but like you don't know how to to work through that and so yeah like i that's like a definite pattern or a definite theme like this feeling of needing the control and like and have that because there is that fear. And I like the anger totally makes sense because if you're repressing that, then the only way you can express anything is to, to express it out, to like, let it go hard like that. And then, oh man, like to have the one thing that is your kind of constant, that baseball and have that now taken. Yeah. Yeah, It relates to that really well, because I mean, I don't know how much you've listened to our story, but football and sports was Dominic's whole life. And then he got hurt um, at the time of our mom's addiction and he just had no ambition to get back into it. Right. He just had no, it was, we've talked about it a lot and I'm sure he'll touch on that, but yeah, it's just uh, to watch from the outside. Like I was a big pusher as the older brother for him in sports. I'm like, come on, man. Like just, you just got to do it. You just got to do it. And he's just like, nah, it was just, nah, you know, I don't, you know, and the whole time he doesn't know how to express it. It was really his mental health. that was the issue. It wasn't his physical health. You know, he had healed himself. His, his ankle had healed, but it was the mental health aspect of it that he just had no drive or ambition to do anything anymore. So, uh, so yeah, I went in the soft, I went to sophomore year of high school, um, had big plans. Uh, still was dealing with the anger, uh, the resentments and, the you know, the control issues from probably the anxiety, PTSD. And then, uh, you know, my grades started to fail one by one. Uh, I got failed off my first basketball team, my first football team. And uh, about sophomore or junior year, I think this summer I was introduced to alcohol and weed. And 
you know, from think, looking back, when I got sober at first, uh, I didn't tell myself I had a problem. I had a million reasons why I didn't. And then looking into it, I uh, I remember these things. I just like, I would always get obliterated. There's nights where I was alone and I would be a school night and I'd be like, I would drink, take my dad's car without license. And like, it was a stick shift. And there's times he like woke up and his car was in the middle of the road. And he'd be like, bro, what did you do? And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. I was like, probably have a bad emergency break. Um, you could see very quickly how I just had addict tendencies. And I look back and I see two years of denial now, except that like, wow, this really was from the, from the jump, you know, once I started. Um, and before this, the change is huge because the people that knew me, that's why I like Derek Jeter. He didn't like drugs. He didn't like, I actually used to like hate the drug addicts in my school. Like, how could you be an addict? Like, what a loser, you do drugs. And, you know, I was just ignorant of the fact of like addiction and mental health, although I didn't know I was dealing with it myself and soon would be in that pool. Um, and, you know, so I started to throw all my, my morals, things I believed in away. Obviously, I had no faith. I stopped praying at this time. And uh, the problem with alcohol, though, for the next couple of years to my senior year caused me a lot of problems. Obviously, you drink, you lose control of, like, how you act. So that anger would still come out when I was drunk. I'd feel the first couple of drinks, I'd feel easy and feel good. And then, you know, I, I would be, uh, you know, my friend would look at my girlfriend wrong. I'd punch him in the face. Uh just anything. You're acting a fool. I had to be brought, picked up from every house party because hands were thrown. I was screaming at a girl. I was, you know, someone was mad at me for kissing their girl. Like, it was just always, you know, issue. Slowly, you know, and all my friends were, like, in that boat still. Good grades, going to college, big athletes. A couple of them trying to go pro. Like, and they're just like, bro, we don't – I stopped getting invited everywhere. You know, they're like, we can't have you around, man. You're always a problem. And, uh I lost a lot of those friendships and, you know, that became another whole resentment and hurt and pain I was dealing with is like, these are friends since the second grade, you know, we're 18 now, we're like brothers and I'm getting pushed away for good reason, but obviously inside, I don't understand at the time. And, uh, I got really isolated, um, and knew alcohol was becoming a problem, but knew I needed it. You know, it was the one time that it would kind of just calm all the noise inside and all that fear resentment, anxiety, control. And then uh, my senior year of football, I came back senior year from summer and I was like, you know what, I'm going to do this. Let's stop messing up. Everyone started talking to me, kind of like you said, Alex talked to Dominic, you know, friends. And some people did step in and be like, bro, you got a life in front of your parents were telling my parents, like, he, he's got a career you can have here. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think I was like Aaron Judge or anything crazy, but I just knew the game. I played it a lot. I had the potential. And I was like, I'm going to do this. So I played football on my first, and I was thinking about, I wanted to go to Coastal Carolina, and uh, I go to play football, and sure enough, our spring game, I like, I go off, and I always sucked at football, because I was like, I had a lot of fears, I was afraid to hit people, afraid to get hurt, and at this point, I'm a psychopath, so I just started, I actually became a really good football player, and uh, I, I break my leg, and like, I didn't break it, I uh, got a high ankle sprain, like tore some stuff in my leg, catching a ball out of bounds, and now I'm in crutches and a boot for six months, can't walk. Uh, so again, just that obstacle, that demise, that, you know, feeling of sinking. I, I can't get out of this, man. I'm trying to do good. And from there, that was my final resentment towards God, towards life. I was off. Uh, didn't just kind of let my friends cut me off. Hung out a whole new crowd. And, uh, I got introduced to, I just became about money. Cause a big thing was, uh, I did always have a big heart. That's the one thing everyone said since I was a kid. And I, as much as I wanted to play baseball, I knew I could make a lot of money and help a lot of people, you know, uh, we weren't poor, but I was the oldest. My parents 
now they're, you know, pretty well set. But when I was young, you know, uh, they're just getting their life together, I feel like. And then they gave me everything I needed. I also grew up in kind of like a wealthy town in Fairfield County in Connecticut. And, uh, you know, my friends are getting the new Jordans and brand new cars. Like my parents provided, but, you know, I got a $4,000 grand day, which I was grateful of. But like, you know, I just like, I want to spend. Uh, and my aunts and uncles would play games. Like they'd just be like, like just to root me off. They're like, oh, when you make it, you're going to buy me a house. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, so I was like, all right, now it's off with baseball. It's on to the money. You know, so I started working like crazy. I ran a restaurant, delivered pizza for some like Albanian that my dad said was in the mob and didn't want me working there. So I'd lie about working there. I'd be drinking great goose while so delivering pizzas, driving these beamers around for them from one restaurant to another. Don't know why. I didn't ask questions. Uh, and then got introduced to Oxycontin. Uh, I graduated in 2008. So that was really when Oxycontin was booming. 2004, 2008 came out around the country the epidemic was really strong um everyone was doing it in my area you could get it out this is okay to talk about on here but like i can go to the bronx and get it for 20 dollars a pill and sell it for 70 up here i'll make it more than most mm -hmm. people apparently on their job i saw three of them so i wasn't even an addict yet in that sense um uh, but people put me onto that and i failed my first drug deal uh i don't like to talk about this stuff a lot but you got to qualify a little but i stole Older kids explain how to sell drugs and do some serious stuff at the city around here. It's like, first, you got to get your money up. So you got a job, but you need a little bit more and more. So, like, look in your cabinets and see if you got any, like, Percocet, Oxycontin. So I found this thing that said my dad's name. I won't say his name, but his name. And it says, makes you puke in my mom's handwriting. And I looked at it, and it was, like, forever. It was Percocet, whatever. And I went and sold it to older kids. Sure enough, they threw it out in a gas station right down the road. And the next morning, cops are at my door saying, why is this in the garbage? And so I like failed my first drug deal. I should have known then. Uh, my dad, my mom, and dad looked at me, and I was like, "No, someone robbed us, I guess." And like, you know, the lies just started. So I wasn't even using drugs, and I was buried in lies, and that just pushed me further away from my family. Uh, fast forward to this, all this stuff. Um, a couple weeks later, sitting at a table, a couple friends, and uh, you know, come on, do a line, do a line, do a line. At this point, I'm like, all right, I do it. And right away, I had that release of alcohol but I was in control. Uh, you know, for people that haven't done it, you have that euphoria, but you're not sloppy. You're not, I mean, unless you do a lot, you start nodding out, but I, felt, I had the euphoria, but I was like, Hey, I'm still here. Okay. This is perfect. I could have, get rid of all the anxiety and fear and stuff bottled up, but I'm, I'm kind of calm in the head. Um, and I got into Oxycontin for years. Um, kind of things I'm really not proud of. Um, we're close to the city. So got really into like moving, Pills back and forth, uh, and you know, fast forward to all that. When they made those, so you couldn't abuse them, got in the Percocet. Every time there was ways to get out, I just got back in. And at this point, I'm lying. My brother doesn't know me. He's watching me snort pills. He's watching a kid that he used to just be amazed by my athletic talents and how I help people. Was just loving to people, and now he's watching me scream at people, fight my friends, do drugs. I remember one time he came in the house. My parents were away in our entire back room in our living room was just huge bags of weed that took up the entire room and he was just like what are you doing man and uh no i thought it was funny at the time and obviously as we're going through my story it's not gonna be funny uh but yeah so I everything you can imagine but i never got arrested so every time everyone would try to say do you have some kind of problem i'd just be like no 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 make money never been in trouble don't know what you're talking about and uh they knew something was going on but they didn't know what and uh you know, one time my parents got me off 
I finally got in a little trouble with a girlfriend and a arg- drunk argument. But my parent, my dad said, that's it. You're moving out. You tell us what the problem is. I told them they got me on this thing called Suboxone. Um, did not work for me uh, at all. I stayed sober for like a month, maybe. And then uh, I didn't change anything inside. You know what I mean? It got me for myself and my sobriety. I don't judge anybody. It saves a couple of my friends' lives. Uh, but for me, that wasn't sober. You know, I was clean. I wasn't storing drugs all day, but I was, you know, and that was absent in my life, but I was still me. I didn't change. I didn't grow. I didn't learn anything about myself. And uh, found out you could sell it for money, sold it for money, got back on drugs. Um, finally, one one more morning, I uh, felt everything building up really, really high around me. And uh, this is where the story starts to change is uh, I was in a different city in Connecticut. And uh, I was running a call center of 1,200 people. I was a senior manager. Uh, and then before work, I would smoke crack in my car and snore heroin and go in in a suit and live a double life and tell everyone else they're late for work and sign this written warning and then go to the bathroom and do more drugs like a good addict. Uh, and I left there in a suit. I went to this city, uh, met, my, met my guy. And there was, long story short, we was hanging out front and there was a shooting right down the road. And at this point, like, it was just up to here. I wanted to get sober. I just had no way. Uh, you know, I felt like I was just going to break down mentally. Uh, I could feel the lies, the relationships ruining. And I uh, got home. Uh, I drove home right away. I was shook from the shooting. And uh, I was just down the block. But it, I just felt like I'm not. I'm going to die soon. Like, I'm not going to make it out of this. And that was the one day my mom decided to hit me and just randomly start being like, that's it. We know you're on something. God, tell us. And started pressing me. And I just hit my knees and started crying. Uh, I cried like I haven't heard until later in my story. Uh, and I just told her, you got to get me out of here. I'm, I'm not going to make it much longer. Uh, you know, I told her everything. They got me on a flight to detox in Miami. I stayed, went to a rehab in Florida, Pompano Beach. Uh, got sober. Got to a halfway house that they had there. Stayed there for another 30 days because I knew I didn't want to go back. Got jacked. Got tan. Went to Pompano Beach in Miami looking at girls every day in thongs. And with, made a really good relationship with my friends. But didn't, again, we're here again where I'm sober, but I'm not working on myself spiritually or mentally, anything. Physically, but not in any other way. Um, and came home. Stayed, went to meetings. Um, started maybe one or two steps and then uh, stopped going to meetings, got drunk, did cocaine and went back on heroin for a couple of years. Um, to the point where my lungs were failing, all my yet started happening. I always said, I've never been arrested. I've never been this, never been that. Well, a week after arguing that with my parents and using those words, uh, I got arrested twice in a week. I had uh, a DUI in front of my parents' house. I was having a few drinks with my brother. I went to talk to some girl that wanted to meet up in my car. And I just turned the key on because March in Connecticut so it was pretty cold at night. And I had like one foot out the door and was having a twisted tea. And someone called the cops because my car was running. And I got a DUI. And then four nights later, I got arrested with uh, a lot of narcotics on me, an open bottle in New York. And uh, never went to court for either of them. I had warrants in both states. Kept on running for a while. And uh, a year later, was at that point again. It was up to here, you know. Mentally, spiritually, just couldn't hold in the lies, couldn't hold in the, the lie of addiction uh, on the outside. Even if you ask me at 24, you know, doing drugs and stuff. So you work at a restaurant, what's your plan? I'm like, oh, I'm going to get back to the Yankees. I'm going to work there. And people are like, okay, man, you weigh 100, 
forty pounds and you're six two, like you don't look like you're much an athlete, you know. And lungs would if I tried to just get up and walk around and serve tables, my lungs would wheeze because the way I snorted the heroin whenever I had in it, it messed with my react to my lungs weird. Uh, I was pale. And uh, one night went to leave this restaurant. These two girls and my friend wanted to go. And I said, if I drive your car, I'm going to get arrested. And they thought I was being funny. Well, I got arrested a year later in the same exact spot in the road where I got arrested that other time in New York by, by cops and still had warrants for never going to court. And once they came to the door, they said, oh, we've been looking for you and get out. And smart me dumped a bag of cocaine on the floor. So they saw all that, knew it wasn't snowing. So I got in trouble for a lot more drug charges and uh, whatever it's called, skipping court. So bench warrants. And went into, uh, this is like first little God moment, I call it. Went into jail. Um, they're like, you're going to go in actual jail because you're going to be doing some time um, if you can't bail yourself out. I said, no, no, I had like at least two grand cash on me, 1400 cash on me. I knew my bail would be like that or less. And uh I'm sitting there in the cell and I'm just like already planning like how I can get out of this. And I'm watching this cop put money into this like ATM machine and I'm like, something's not sitting right. That's a lot of money. It looks like my money. And what's that ATM machine? I just had like, I should say something. So they, like, hey, what are you doing? And he turned around, he's like, Oh, I'm putting your money in for commissary. And I was I like freaked out on him. I was like, dude, that's the money I'm bailing myself out with. What are you doing? And he's like, Oh, I thought you were going to jail. I didn't know. And I was forced to call my parents. Um God pushed me to be honest. I mean, I don't know being honest. I'm in jail. So they know at that point. And uh, I said no for a while. And then my one rule with them was I, if I stayed out, I'm a grown man living with them. Uh, if I stayed out, I would call them. So I, I said, you know, let me just call them. Tell me, leave me here. I want to do my time. I'll detox in jail. See when I get out and face the judge. And uh, usual call from the jail they've had before. And it's like, hey, just letting you know, I'm not coming home tonight. I'm going to sleep in the county prison so uh have a good night and i heard my dad saying leave him i hung up they like got me my inmate clothes tested me for tuberculosis everything and then all of a sudden he came he's like never mind your mom's here come outside and i was like damn i'd rather go to jail so uh i had to face some music with her um the second got home i got the same talk they were like rehab or homeless you choose and I was like, no, I want to get sober. Uh, I think I got myself in trouble subconsciously on purpose that night. I knew I had this gut feeling. I was like, hey, those girls thought I was being cute. I was like, I'm going to get arrested. I knew I was going to get arrested. Uh, and I knew that was probably my only way out. I didn't have the balls to ask for help. You know, it's tough when you're in that deep to look at everyone and say, yeah, I've been lying. You know, I need it. Yeah, it's wild because I had that same kind of thought pattern with our mom. There were so many times where, um, I would just sit and hope and hope and hope that she would get arrested because if she's in jail, she can't do drugs. Well, it's, if she's in jail, she it's harder for her to uh, do drugs. And so maybe like that is the opportunity for her to sober up and to not, you know, to not be on the streets, to be safe. Yeah. So I went on and uh, it, it just I went to a rehab, a detox, a rehab. Um, and I went to in like Kent, Connecticut. It's a called High Watch Farm. It's actually someone could I'll have to double check, but I'm pretty sure it's the first AA or real rehab in America or in the world. Um, it's where the AA, the guy who wrote AA, wrote it in the farm there. He got sober there, so parts of the book were written in some chapel up there. He left New York, and they used to take him up and throw him in what they call drunk farms, and they'd just leave him there to get sober and then bring him back to life. And uh, 
So I went there. Um, first time I had some spirituality and God feeling in my chest. Um, at that time I was cold, you know. I started to have friends die. So I was seeing, you know, I was seeing stuff every day. I was doing my stuff. I had a lot of guilt for selling drugs, um, taking part and stuff like that. And it was just like peaceful, you know. You, at night, it was it was winter. Um, I was up there on New Year's, and I just remember having cigarettes with my roommates, and like you're in the woods, woods, on the hill, and it, you just first time I could hear nothing, you know, no noise, no being in cities, no deer. I would just listen to the snowfall, have a cigarette, and like one in the morning, just sit out there, and just like I could feel God for the first time, or what I call God, and uh, it, it was it was special. They were big on twelve steps. Um, for anonymity purposes, I don't say what I go to, but they were an AA-based group. Um, and, you know, right away they had us working on the steps. It's the first time I did meditation, yoga, things I used to laugh at. Um, and that was huge for me to finally find some peace, finally work on myself. And I got out, got sober, stayed sober for seven months. Once I got out, I got to meetings and started working with a sponsor, did the steps, and stayed sober seven months. Uh, and then from there, decided I was on step 12, which is help other people for those that don't know. And obviously I'm like, nope, get money. And I stopped going to meetings and got three jobs, tried to start a million things to make a million dollars in a month. You know, I felt like I was like, well, I'm 28 now. This, I should be way further. And you have like this anxiety, you know, all your friends have graduated college and stuff. So it was a lot. Um, but yeah, so. One night made a bad decision, got so drunk, I took my dad's car by accident, went on and uh, kind of crashed a little and thought it was my car and couldn't face the music. So I moved to Yonkers. It's next to like Yankee, like the Bronx in New York. Lived there for six years, six, uh, six, six, eight months, just drinking and doing cocaine. Never went back to opiates at this point because I probably would have died. Definitely. Uh, made a fool out of myself a lot to the point where I was miserable enough to go back home do the steps, get sober, and everything went amazing again. Uh, I had my whole life back, had my family relationships, made amends to my brother, to my, my parents. Um, I got my electrical license, you know, just everything. Once I get sober and do the steps, for me, uh, it's just life works, you know. things Life still happens at times, but what I need comes to me, you know. So definitely beyond blessed for that. Um, and then a year after my so a, a week after my year celebration date the world shut down due to covid so i'm sitting there like why the hell did i get sober man like i just wasted 10 years and i hit a year and i finally just started to get like you know savings i was planning to go overseas for the first time i was like now nah, i can enjoy it it shut down i'm stuck in my house with my brother and my parents i was like damn i'm screwed um uh, that's not a place you want to be as an addict so I started, uh, I remember back to times when I, I I was just home from rehab and I had nothing. I didn't have a car. I was stuck in my parents' house. All I had was a gym in the basement, like a homemade shit gym with a concrete floor and uh, food in the house. And I just worked out, prayed, meditated, ate a healthy breakfast, went for a run and did the same thing every day. Look for a job. But I learned how to do something my sponsor called a spiritual bank account. Uh, that's a huge part of my book. Is that 
I would struggle and I would call him and say, I don't feel good, man. Again, I'm sober today, but oof, I'm ready to punch him in the face or take a shot. And he's like, well, that's not a good sober. Let's talk about that. And uh, he's like, well, where's your spiritual bank account? What have you done today? And I'd be like, what do you mean? He's like, well, did you pray? And I'm like, oh, I forgot. I was like, okay, so that's your negative money. Did you work out today? And I'd be like, no, I didn't. And so we learned, I really set my life on a spiritual bank account. And I think it works for anyone, not just sobriety. Uh, you know, I have sober friends, family that, have followed this and feel amazing and it's just that we need to do good it sounds simple but how many people just go in a rut and you're just like oh yeah i haven't done anything i like in a month all i do is play video games and drink beers you know and it's amazing a little bit of work but uh so i stuck with that and you know i was like actually i could thrive in this setting i've been here before so i actually killed it i got ridiculously in shape I started to write my book. This was what, four years ago now, three years ago. So at that point, I was only a year sober. I started to write my book. I started to, I learned day trading, stock option with my friend, literally two sober addicts and we were making money on day trading. You know, I learned how to like fuel my brain in a good way. I started to play little video games again for fun. Uh, I started dating, like I just lived. And uh, halfway through COVID, uh, I lost three friends in a week. Uh, one of my friends, I played Pop Warner, like young football with, took his own life after being sober a few years. Uh, my roommate that used to sit out with me and have cigarettes every night uh, in that rehab in High Washington, Connecticut, uh, got out and overdosed. Uh, and my best friends in childhood, one of my three best friends uh, that was better than me in baseball, and was there from childhood to baseball and an addiction. He broke his hip his senior year and got an opiates as well. Um, he overdosed and died. Uh, so on the third one was him. And the first two, you know, when you're in that lifestyle, you got a lot of people dying. That's how it sounds. So you kind of, it hits you every time, but you know how to be like, well, that's that life. You know what I mean? Like he was in it with me. Yeah. yeah. But this was like an older brother to my brother. It was like a brother to me. Um, and, you know, one happened felt a certain type of way. The second one happened. So, all right, we're a little shaky here. Um, and the, the thing about COVID is like, I didn't have my in-person meetings. I was before this, I was speaking everywhere. I was giving, I was sponsoring people. I was killing it. And it's like, now I'm stuck in my house doing my best. I was chairing meetings on Zoom. You know, we had like meetings in the parking lot. We put together ourselves. So, but it wasn't the same life, obviously for everyone. And then when I heard about my third friend, uh, my world was really shattered. Um, Oh, man, I remember just sitting in my room crying and just being like, uh, I'm going to relapse. I know it. And just feeling this like dark wave come over me. Um, and the next morning I got up, I went for a run and I was really just tired. Even before this, there was just like five other people from high school died all from opiates. And I was like, I'm tired of fucking hearing about it. And uh, sorry for my language. I don't know if I swear on here or not. Uh, so uh, I just went and uh, long story short, I just... Uh, Went for a run, and the whole time I was talking to God, just like, what am I doing here? Like, yeah, how do I help people? Like, because I called my sponsor, and he was like, you're on 12 step. You've been helping people. Keep helping people. That's how you're going to feel better about it. Do it for for your friend. So I was running, and I was running my shirt off in, in my town, and I don't know. It just this God thing. It just hit me as I was running. I ran like four miles in the heat, and it just hit me, like the whole vision I had of where I got to today of – um wait just like the thought i mean a vision of just like wait 
I looked crazy, like crackhead, crazy, skinny, and like terrible and drug addict. Now I look better. So there's the physical appearance. I have social media. I could touch so many people. I can't, because of COVID, I can't go do it in meetings anymore. Um, I'm very well known in my town. It's a, not a huge town, big enough, but I'm a big, just from sports, my brother, like just connected. Everyone knows everyone. Everyone knows how bad I was. I'm good now. Uh, who cares? It's not like if I put my story out there, it's not going to freaking surprise anyone. Everyone knew what I was doing. So I was like, uh, I should post something. So I, I ran back to my house. I was just running on the main roads. I prayed, cried, and just put out a post on Facebook and Instagram of like, because uh, obviously I put like the RIPs from everyone before. So I just put a whole new post of a paragraph. Like, I'm sick of, t- I, I mentioned, like, I know I had to put some sad RIPs up, but I'm sick of talking about people dying. Um, I was like, again, my name is Jonathan. I'm an alcoholic addict. I've been sober at this time for a year and a half. I was like, you don't have to die. If you need help, DM me. Um, and I just kind of went off. I came out as I was crying. I typed this out in two seconds and hit send on all my social medias. And at this time, I had a lot of just uh, guilt, you know. Uh, my brother had to hold his head down. My parents did. The whole town knew I was doing bad things, you know. Um, and it's a stigma of addiction. It's, uh, you know, they're all looking looking down at me. So I was like, this also is immense to my parents and my brother that now they could pick their head up high and look people in the eye, you know, that I'll now I'll be helping people. And uh, the post blew up. I mean, like, people I thought hated me, like, I'm so proud of you. Like, people I didn't even know followed me still from high school or DMing me for my basketball team, asking me if I could help them get sober, they're struggling. It was just such exactly what I needed at that time. Um, I got to helping a bunch of guys through there. I uh, started to train people. And one night, some of my parents, uh, I was like, I should make this a thing. Because then I started mon- mon- Monday Motivations. And it was my way of helping myself. And uh, we came up with Get Lifted. Would be like the tag, my, my, my name, my, my brand. Uh, I started a little clothing brand out of it, which I got to get back to. I kind of stopped for a while. But uh made these shirts to Get Lifted. And it's it's like a, arms lifting a weight in the clouds. So like, and I, my whole motto was get lifted spiritually, mentally, physically. And it was that spiritual bank account idea that I was posting to people. And it was crazy. Just the support was so cool. Yeah, we definitely need some merch. So go ahead and send us over some. <laughs> appreciate it. I'll have to send you guys some out. My yeah. girlfriends are pushing me to do it again. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. People reached out for sort of personal training, had a little side cash business of like training people. A lot of them were dealing with depression. I even like addicts. So it was amazing. I was like, that's when I started to see this help anyone. My parents started to work out 5 a.m. every day. They started to watch their health. At times, my brother did. Um, yeah, it was cool. Are you still doing any uh, training or like working one-on-one with people? Yeah, uh, in a way, the training I stopped. Um, a lot's happened in the in the last two years. So a lot of things have changed. Um, a lot of focus recently has been the book uh so i'm sure we'll get into that uh, that's supposed to come out in december or like a month i'm gonna last final little edit and publish on amazon um uh, working for a year or two on that but the clothes will probably come back after that uh it just takes a lot of focus i never wrote a book you got a drug addict writing a book so i'm like it's <laughs> tough man i just i don't i never did school my girlfriend's a uh uh just became an RN in the ICU. And so she's been helping me a lot because she went to obviously college. So she like, like, what are you, like, your English is terrible. So she's been a godsend just trying to 
read my English. Um, she's like, your points are amazing. Like, you know, she's like, this is the exact story I reached so many people, but she's like, this comma here and this, that. So, you know, and I'm getting out of this stuff. Bro, I've been in college for four years. I'm basically my fifth year with my deployment stuff. Uh, and my writing still feels terrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hopefully I get back to it. But uh, it went on for a while. I got to do so many cool things. I even, like, one of my friends works for the Yankees. Well, not he used to. Now he does, like, bigger stuff than that, even, like, sports stuff. But he, uh, like, I made amends to all my friends for the most part. You know, and he got me to go, like, do the equipment for the Yankees a couple times with his dad. So, like, there's just moments in my sobriety that, you know, all these cool things I could share about. It's like, in the Yankees locker room, like, like if you think about it, it was, like, two years ago. It's like, no one would think that, you know, or, like, even just, like, my physical fitness, you know, I was so grateful to look at that and say, you know, it's not an ego thing. I think first humans, like, react to visuals. So if you see it before and after me, you're like, all right, now I'm sold. Now tell me what you what you learned or what you did. You know, instead of me just, I could be sober and drinking Jack and Coke in here. You know what I mean? When people can see that, they're like, all right, now I'm, 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 I want to hear, you know. So that was huge. I mean, and especially in sports, like, we love an underdog story in sports, you know. Like, we all want to see the underdog succeed. So it's like, I feel like in a lot of, um, athletes that have aspirations to go to the next level. I mean, you have a friend that got hurt and also got addicted to stuff. And it's like, it's, that's a lot of people or they didn't make it to where they wanted and they feel like a failure and that pressure that they had their whole lives. I mean, look at um, Mikey Williams, for example, right? He just got charged uh, 25 years for a gun charge. And he, you know, he's committed to Memphis, like what, like a big basketball school. Like, it's very easy to like mess up, right? There's so much pressure on you all the time. You have so much expectation for yourself that a lot of athletes, sorry, my cat is tweaking. Um, it's, I lost my train of thought. Um, <laughs> it, the it's underdog easy. story part, right? It's, it's, uh, it's just, I can see why a lot of people would resonate with that and why your friends would, you know, want those relationships back because they can understand, you know, they understand like all these things are happening to you and you want to be back to where you were, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's, uh, definitely like now I play another blessing is uh, I play softball now for fun. So I get to touch on that like baseball skills, like, I always thought I'm on the best shortstop in this area. So everyone tries to pick me up. I get to have that, like, uh, what do you call it? Uh, like that competition edge, you know what I mean? Like that like competitive edge, and it brings that back. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, I definitely can't wait to get back to training people. You know, that'll, that'll, that'll be fun. I have a few ideas to open a gym and stuff like that. But there's a lot. Yeah, both don't tell an addict to do 10 things at once. It takes 10 years. <laughs> but yeah, that's the, to answer your question, that's, that's where the book came from. Uh, I just realized how delicate it was. And uh, my story got a little harder through my, through my story. Whenever I tell it to like detoxes or rehab and stuff, I always tell them, I think the theme of my story is staying sober to anything, you know? So I went through COVID 
went through losing my best friend and a couple other, I mean, handfuls of friends, but a couple of close ones. Um, and then after I healed from that, I hope one of my, our other best friend gets over off heroin and alcohol. Um, and then a lot has happened. Then we, uh, things got steady. I became an electrician and just played softball, trained people on the side, pushed to get lifted, pump, pumped out posts, was helping people, felt on fire. Um, and then life tested me again. Um, didn't hit this part of my story and it kind of touches on the, me and God or what I, where I'm at today in the book. But, um, I, so at this point, I have my brother on my softball team. I made amends to him. We're really cool. Uh, you know, my parents have a healthy relationship. Obviously, those relationships are always growing. You know, I did a lot of pain to my parents and my brother when I was younger, but we're having good times. You know, we look, we live together, so we we're cool. My brother had his own place 30 minutes away in Connecticut. And uh, my brother had the same tendencies. Uh, he's what I call a successful. I don't even like to call him an alcoholic addict because that's for him to say. But he would even say, oh, I'm the smart addict, like alcoholic, because he wasn't like a drug addict. But he's like, he drank a lot. And he was like, I learned from you how not to do it. And like, because I'll just get caught doing the dumbest stuff all the time. So he's like, you're just an idiot. Like, I'm just checking boxes, watching you get in trouble, get in trouble. Like, don't do that. Don't do that. And he was successful. He did HVAC. He always had, he had like forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 challenger. His own, he, like, I could never get my own place. I was always just at my parents, like, drug addict or trying to get sober. And he had his own place from 24, 23 on, nice car, loved fishing, hunting. And uh, after a while, you know, I started to see him fall out of that. And a couple of times he came up to me, he'd joke, he's an alcoholic. Or he'd be like, man, I'm just in a bad drinking spell. Like, I'd kind of talk him out of it. He'd take what he wanted, do better for a while, go back into it. Um, but he always had a good heart. He was never like, I would never call him, you know what you think of an alcoholic he definitely was an addict because of me he hated drugs um and he came to my parents one time and uh i could tell they're having a weird talk at my parents house like something was going on so i left it alone and then my parents left and i asked him like, oh, what's going on and he told him oh i'm just telling mom i'm having a rough time uh, he was like i just i have racing thoughts i can't sleep i don't do anything i love anymore and da, da 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 da, I'm drinking way too much. Like I always drink a lot, cause but cause he was a type of, like, I was that type of drinker too. Like he'd go a week, Monday to Friday not drinking, get absolutely bombed Friday Saturday and be have to lay around all Sunday, maybe take Monday off and then have a normal work week. And I was the same way. Um, I think we both had bouts where we drank five nights here and that, but for the most part, you know, it was just heavy drink. Like didn't know when to stop once we started hard parties, and he uh. He, I just told him, man, I was like, well, how, for you to say it must be serious, tough kid. He never really talked about much. And um, he made one comment before I left for High Watch Recovery Center. And he said, I don't hate you. I just can't watch you anymore. That's why I distance from you. Um, I don't know when you're going to die or get shot or overdose or killed. He's like, so I just distance from you. It's not that I hate you. And that actually was the first amends he made for me, basically, where I could see how I was affecting other people. Um, so I just let him know. I was like, I'm worried about you. You're affecting me the same way. Uh, I gave him words of wisdom, told him I loved him. He gave me a hug. Uh, and I asked him, I said, uh, just promise me one thing. And I guess I found out later on my mom and dad did too. Um, I was like, just promise me it's not suicidal. And if it is, 
I've dealt with worse. I was like, oh, we'll get you the help you need. He's like, no, no, it's not. I promise you. And uh, the week before, he got in a really nasty fight with his girlfriend. My parents were away at their house. He came up to where I lived. And he just said some messed up stuff. And it was a really bad argument. So I already had worries about him. And uh, a couple of weeks went on. And then I woke up one morning to go to a meeting. And I, he was supposed to go to that meeting with – I was going to Yankee game with my friends. And he was supposed to go to that meeting with me because he wasn't sure if he's an alcoholic. But he's like, I think I should work on my drinking at least. If I'm alcoholic, I'll just stay sober. But I think I need to definitely listen, hear you guys out, you alcoholics, and see if I am. Um, that night, I went meet up with some girl after training someone in a basketball game I played in. And got home late, and he was gone. And I texted him. He's like, oh, I had to pick up my girlfriend from the Brooklyn. We're at my place in Connecticut. I'll talk to you tomorrow. And I was like, all right, I love you. And I woke up from my meeting, and this is just how weird things happen. And this is the hardest thing in my life I've ever gone through. Uh, I woke up from my meeting, sat up straight. Um, and as I went to stand up, the doorbell rang. And it was the Brookfield Police Department. And I just, it was like God in me. I just knew it. I started yelling to my dad. I was like, fuck, I knew this was going to happen. Uh, something happened to him. I figured he probably crashed his car because I think he drank and drove a lot in that fast car. And the cop opened door. It was a kid that was a couple of years older than me in high school. He was a cop now. And he was like, yo, John, you talk to your parents. Get your dad. And proceeded to tell my, my dad, me and my mom there at like 7 o'clock in the morning on his front stoop that uh, my brother had passed away. Um, obviously, just a ugly moment. And I found out that he uh, he'd taken his own life. He got in a fight with his girlfriend and shot himself um, after drinking all night. And, uh, man, I was, I was brought right back to that moment in COVID, you know, uh, I was just like, how do I get this? This is the one thing I told him one time I, I can get through anything, but I can't get through losing you. It's my only little brother, uh, meant the world to me is the most important men's I ever made. And, uh, it just fucked me up. Um, uh, I went inside and I just cried. Everyone's obviously crying. And right away, I knew my challenge is not even going to be mourning him. It's going to be staying sober and not ruining my family. Uh, I'll deal with mourning him later, but I can't put my parents through this. And that's what AA helped, uh, in 12 steps. 12 step program helped me with is I didn't think about myself. Old me would have right have been, been like, you know, like can't deal, like snort, drink, whatever. And I was like, no, like, my parents, that was my mens to my brother uh, to stay sober and be a brother he needed, the son my parents needed. And I went in my room and did what I, how I stay sober. I was told to pray every day on my knees uh, to whatever God I could imagine, even if it's not Jesus, if it's not Muhammad or Buddha, just pray. And I, I did that. I just said, keep me sober. Uh, let me be there for my parents. Let my brother rest in peace. Went outside, I called my sober network. Well, I texted him in the group chat. I called my best friend that was like a older brother to him as well that helped get sober. He was crushed. Uh, and it was just a fucked up couple months from then. Uh, by the grace of God, I stayed sober. Uh, I went to a meeting that weekend. I was crying in front of 30 people. Uh, it was rough, but uh, that's, what, that's what started the book. Struggled for a while after that. My parents... We, we stayed there and I just kept doing get lifted. You know, uh, I, was, I lost probably 30, 40 pounds. I couldn't eat. Um, 
it was it was not fun to be sober at that time, but I knew it was better than what dead or being high would be like. So I just went and uh, when I could, I took two weeks off softball, and this is how I see. And I like what you said. That's what I want to touch on too. Is that when I sponsor people, like, oh, well, what do you believe in? And I went to Catholic church this morning. I don't really know. Like, I, I believe there's a God. Uh, I believe some of the stuff in Catholic or Christianity. But I just know when I pray, I stay sober. I haven't wanted to drink. I work in bars sometimes. Like, I bartend, about sobriety. Um, I go buy my parents' liquor. Like, I'm high from anything. I'll be in casinos, clubs with my friends sometimes. That's not my scene. But if there's a reason for me to be there, I could be there, you know. And, uh I went and got, so my brother was on my softball team and I went back and it's a little just fun story for sobriety and the things I can't have and hope. So I went back, had a terrible three weeks. Um, like I said, I'm pretty good. So it was bad. I knew I was just in my head. Uh, I get to play and be shaking. Like, you know, uh, that was my amends to him. Having those moments of watching him, like high five me after I make a crazy, like Jeter play a short, like that meant my whole sobriety to me, you know, yeah, not everything. But uh, I I get up and I have a terrible at bat again. It's been a week or two of this. And I remember getting the club out. I broke a bat and my best friend was on my team that I called that morning. And I was like basically crying. I was like, bro, if this the rest of this game doesn't go well, I'll never touch a baseball bat again. And the stupid fucking game, he ruined it for me. I was freaking out like in the corner just to him. But I was having a little mental breakdown. And he's like, bro, just stick with it. Like talk to God. And... I got to the plate and I just said, bro, you either ruined my favorite thing here or show me something. And up to this date, I, I made a home run that season. It was like kind of like the first quarter of the season. And he hadn't played in 10 years and he already hit the wall twice. So the joke was the little Mendonca was like my little brother was going to hit a home run before I did. And, you know, I got up and the first pitch was like an absolute bomb home run. Uh, it just happened. My, new, my friends were there watching and they had a new phone. They recorded it. Um, and then I got up the next one and said, because addicts always doubt faith in God. I said, all right, you think you're smart? I was like, show me something else. And then basically loaded, and it was like one of the last innings. And I don't remember hitting the ball. It's just I have another video of that sailing into the moon. And it was a walk-off grand slam. And uh, or at least put us in the lead, and then we won. And I remember just crying dugout of like, so this is how it's going to be without him. Look for signs, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I got you. I was like, all right, I see you both. And uh, that's when I was like, you know what? Everyone kept saying, let's get lifted. You got to write a book. You got to write a book. And I'm thinking, like, I don't even know how I got to this point. Like, it's been a blur. That's God to me. Like, I just prayed and went to some meetings, listened to what people said. And now I got a town that, like, just blessings. Like, I'm so grateful. I'd go to the store and I used to be, like, hiding with my mom. Like, I hope people don't see me. And, like, teachers would come up to me that used to hate me. Like, oh, my God, John, I see your post. You got my son sober. He watched it. And, like, now he's over. And, like, it's crazy. Like, I didn't even know. Just, like, I learned energy. Like, we all work off each other. And so it's amazing what you guys are doing here. Um, kind of fly to the end of this. I'm going to chat. I just went and uh, my parents sold their home. I stopped all the stuff you asked about. Um, I needed to be there for them. I moved with them to South Carolina, Merle's Inlet. Um, my mom's parents and aunt, my aunt lived there. They just didn't want to be in my childhood home anymore, respectfully, I understand. Uh, that was really hard for me. I just got with my girlfriend, so I'm gonna leave her, leave every my sober network, my friends, my softball. But I got to be there with them, and I didn't want to be without them either. So uh, I lived with them for the summer. They kind of finally got in their roots. So I was like, now I'm just chilling in South Carolina, bartending, 
my girlfriend's up there, my friends are up there. Like, we had the conversation with them and moved back up here. Uh, like I said, I never could have anything over my head. I have an apartment now, a garage where I park my car. Um, you know, and uh, I said, I'm going to do this. Uh, she saw me actually writing the book, funny story. And she's like, she's a little younger than me. She's like, are you kidding me? She's like, you're literally writing a book. She's like, it's 2023, bro. You type it. Like, it's going to take you 20 years. <laughs> Like, I, can't, I think some people think because I'm, like, clean cut. I get this all the time. When they hear my story, they're like, wow, I didn't, I wasn't ready for that. I was like, I'm clean cut. Like, I'm not that intelligent. Like, maybe life intelligent, but, like, books, like <laughs> oh, I've left school for a reason. Like, and she's still this day when she talks about it, she's like crying, laughing. She's like, I cannot believe you're writing a book. She's like, I'm going to make a book about that. And uh, <laughs> so she got me a book and I just, a uh, laptop, I mean, and I just stay up late for the last year and a half to three in the morning, typing, outlining, watching videos on how to write a book. And, here we are today. It's a couple, about a month away, and uh, I'm back to like posting again. My account, actually, my Facebook and my Instagram got hacked, and the guy, sick story, turned the picture, profile picture, into my brother that took his own life. I don't think the guy knew what he was doing. That was a sick joke. Uh, so mm -hmm. I'm rebuilding those. But TikTok, my girlfriend got me on there because I said she's younger. She was like, "No, you need TikTok. That's what's gonna get you going." And I was like, "A couple year difference makes a lot." So I went on there. I think that's how I got linked up with you guys. Um, almost at 10,000 followers. Same thing. I just get people from Ireland, Ohio, anywhere. That, like, I try to put sobriety comedy. I think that's how I catch people's attention. And then I put other videos of serious life lessons, my story. And then a little, so it's a mix of funny and a mix of serious. So people can relate, laugh, not feel alone. At the same time, then they get some real, like, if you're new to sobriety, you can learn some things from me in my story. Um, yeah it's amazing so now we're here are you still like doing any sort of speaking are you mentoring people what's going on with that i just got back to that yeah actually just it's weird that it's actually weird crazy side story i know i'm this is a long-winded story so let's keep it short for you guys now but uh perfect yeah it's great once i get going it's hard to remember half the stories when you start telling it it just blows but uh i hate the story part i like just like q a but i uh bartend right now part-time because obviously i got paid bills while i do all this and i don't have time to train and stuff like that so i had this young clean-cut couple at a bar table and uh good looking both of them guy and girl just you know normal young couple like wouldn't think anything of it and i'm bartending and i walk by them i have like uh i got like just the rosary beads in my grandma's hands and then a dove like my brother and friends like tattoos that passed away and uh my friends and my brother that passed away and I, I walk by this couple and they're like, Hey, we like your tattoos. So I like stop and the links, I appreciate it. And like, what's your relationship to God? And I was like, Oh shit. I was like, I'm a bartender. I wasn't ready for this talk. And <laughs> it was like in my eyes, like beaming, like they're, they're having a serious, they're about to have a conversation. And I was like, Oh God. And I was like, uh, I have one. I was like, I'm still learning it. Um, gaining my faith. I'm sober. I was like, but, uh, yeah, I don't want to tell you. It's a deep conversation there. And they're like, yeah, you're sober. Yeah, you're sober. Like, they knew me. And I was like, what is going on here? And they're like, uh, what? and the girl touches my dove. And she's like, what's that for? And I was like, my, from, all I said is for my friends and my brother that passed away. And they like, she's like, yeah, it is. She's like, uh, God, and your brother wanted me to tell you he's okay. Uh, it's not your fault. And, and obviously, I hold a huge guilt over what, what him taking his life. Because he went through a lot of trauma and my anger when I was younger. Like I said, my drug addiction, drug dealing. I introduced him to alcohol and tobacco and stuff when he was young, you know, so like 
right there, I'm like, Phew, when like tears are building up my eyes, I'm at work in front of people. I'm like, I appreciate it. And uh, they're like, uh, they just want to say a lot, like let your parents know he's okay. Um, there's going to be, a, this is a new chapter starting for you in your life. Big things are going to happen. Uh, stay with it. And just like beaming in my eyes. Like, I was just like, they're reading my soul. I don't know what's going on. And so I was like, that's crazy. I was like, I actually got a book coming out. Um, so that's wild. I was like, appreciate it. And we had a good talk. Whatever. They said a prayer for me. I walked away. And I try to get back as much as I can. And the next morning, the person that put me in touch with you guys DM me about being on a podcast. And then the same morning, my rehab reached out to me to go speak at them, speak at theirs, each of the patients. And the same morning, my high school reached out to speak to them about my book. Um, so I was a little freaked out. And I was like, whoa. And hmm. then I talked to my parents later. And my mom and dad like to dream about my brother because that's how they feel connected. And uh, I tell them, like, I just let it happen. Like, it happens here, there. Won't happen for three months. Happens there. Like, can't force it. And they call me later, and they both woke up that morning and had a dream of him. And they were, like, really positive dreams. So uh, I like to share that story because it's crazy how things work out. You've given me so much hope in, like, my own life. <laughs> like, <laughs> holy shit. Like, I don't even – your whole story is, like, like – you could have given up so many times. So, like, it gives me hope for anyone, like, literally anyone. And it's, like, what you're doing is so huge. And, like, especially the book, I mean, it's, like, a super detailed and articulated, like, thing to put on paper so that people can just dive into it, you know. And even with this, like, you telling your story, it's, like, it's uh, it's really motivating and it shows that there's there's – there's no finish line in life. Like it's, it's, it's a marathon. You, you have to go through it. There's, there's so many steps. There's so many things that you can do. And it's all about just doing your best and getting to where you think you need to be. And, um, like I'm just, I, I don't obviously know you, but I'm so proud of you. Like that's everything that you do. Like that's so fucking cool, dude. Like you are one in a trillion, you know, like no one is you. And like, I feel like, how you talk about your story and your experiences, like people can, people can tell that. I appreciate that, man. Thank you. Uh, no, I'm definitely grateful. It's, uh, like you said, you touch people. It's just, it's crazy. I mean, every places I go, I just, have, I get connected with people. And, and I think it, I try to say, it, and I don't think it ever hits home, but someone will stop me like in a bar. Like, I'm at a bar with my girlfriend, restaurant, like having food. And, uh, you know, someone will come up and then pull me aside and say they're from, I used to party with them or they're from high school or some bar I used to manage around here. And they're like, man, you motivate me like crazy. Like, I love your stuff, da da da. And like, they don't realize that's helping me more than them, you know? And that means the world to me because I'm trying to, oh, I'm doing this to help other people. I sacrifice everything to be honest with my story. I'll tell the raw stuff, but it gives me hope. You know, obviously through my story, I lost a lot of hope a lot of times. So, uh, yeah, I just think, uh, Life doesn't get easy. It just it, there's easy times, but we got to have a way to work through it. And that's why I read this book. I want to. After talking to my high school, I'm going to talk to a lot of high schools because I, I realize a lot of this. Like it's not my parents' fault. It's not God's fault. It's like we're just not taught any coping mechanisms how to get spiritually or feeling lifted or emotionally lifted. You know what I mean? So you're going to have, and some people, it's. I think it all feels the same, but. You know, it, you might not call it as serious as like your brother killing himself or 
your parents being an addict or yeah, whatever, you know what I mean? But then you start to learn about people and it's like my parents, parents were addicts. And I didn't know that until I was older. And then that explained some things why my parents acted certain ways to me, you know? And then, uh, you know, you hear about your friends go through and it's just like, people don't have that, that solution. It's like a secret thing that's like right in front of our face. Like, I mean, like social media people are big celebrities. Like they have their stories and people listen to that, but they don't realize that. I mean, you, you were running the call center, you know, you were people's boss, you know, and, and telling them about the rules and stuff like that. And you were doing that in the bathroom. And it's like, that is in front of us, you know, like it's, it's everywhere. It literally is everywhere. A lot of people have stories with it. I mean, the statistics show like it, it is literally everywhere, but I have a question about the writing the book part, right? So like not the typing it out and like the story part of it, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Writing. Um, for me, writing, uh, did something that I feel like just talking couldn't, I feel like focusing and putting your story right there and kind of in reliving it in a way, but in a different, you know, mindset, different outlook on the story. Um, did it help you, uh, validate like your feelings? Like, even though you may have felt like you were hurting people at the time and like, I felt that way when I was, you know, failing in school and not doing sports and stuff like Alex's point from earlier, you know, like he was trying to get me motivated and, and all these people were trying to do that. And I felt like I was a failure. Um, did it help you validate your feelings to show like where you were at at that time and how you weren't even able to know what you were feeling, you know? Yeah, that's a, that's an amazing question. Um, that was a huge part for me. I didn't think I realized, uh, you know, cause it was like the whole focus was how to write the book, how to write the book. But then when I was writing it, I was like, Oh, some people that know me are going to understand, like you're talking about, like, I wasn't just an, an a-hole, you know what I mean? I was lost. Oh, I didn't yeah. know what I was doing, you know? Um, it's so sad. And I look back, um, it's tough. You see that stuff about like shadow journal and stuff like that work where I don't know if you've heard about that. Yeah. I think that's huge. I didn't, I didn't, I'm still, I don't even know much about it. I've, I've read up a little and I think, I didn't realize that therapy and rehab, the 12 step programs, they kind of did that in its own way. Um, but yeah, when I was writing it, I was like, this kid didn't know what he was doing. You know, it was almost like looking at me third person. And it's sad. It was like, yes. he was, I was literally like, I literally had in my heart that I'd step on Yankee Stadium one day. And if you fast forward about, you know, fast a year is, you know, I'm driving back at 4 a.m. My parents think I'm in my bed and I'm coming back from the Bronx back to Connecticut, snorting pills off a high school study book, you know what I mean? And transporting drugs. Like, not, I didn't see it coming, you know? It's like a KO in boxing match. It's like I had no idea what was coming. And uh, yeah, so I think it explains a lot of people. Like, even my town from afar, you know, thought I was just um, doing the wrong thing. They, uh, they'll, they'll hear what pushed me to do those things. It's a surreal feeling. Uh, I, you know, I was young when I wrote it. So like I was trying not to feel bad for myself while writing it, but I was writing it like literally sitting there, like trying not to cry in class. Cause I'm like, Oh my God, like 
I, I had no idea what was coming. <laughs> like, uh, that's so sad. Like, I just want to hold this kid and tell him, like, it's going to be fine. Like, you're going to make it out of the end. It may feel like you are, your life is nothing right now, but it, you'll be fine. So, um, reaching the TikTok audience, like, I know a, a lot of the younger generation, my generation, <laughs> are on there. So, reaching people, <laughs> yeah, reaching people early, um, That'll, it'll do a huge thing, teaching people tools, how to, you know, take care of their mental health and all that stuff. It, it, it does wonders, wonders. Yeah, I feel like as, a, as men, especially as men, and I think you touched on, we're not taught like in school. And frankly, I'm, I'm the closest in age to you. I mean, my parents didn't really teach me how to regulate emotion. And I was heavily raised by my grandparents which was even less emotion um and so i think that we're i think as a as a population we're in a better direction with mental health and uh, resources i mean we're still nowhere near what we need to be which we've heard from numerous um counselors and sheree and even the the town hall meeting we went to the in our area um, they're talking about treatment facilities or getting people beds or just education in general. It's just severely lacking the funding. Um, but you me. Oh yeah. You said the last thing you said was beds. Oh, getting, the, I was just saying getting the beds is just severely lacking the funding to support what's needed. But I think that the information with social media and what people are like you were doing or what we're trying to do with this podcast is like you said earlier, you used the word stigma and it is, it's just erase the stigma of addiction. I mean, in general, it's just get rid of the the stigma of just talking about it and it's okay to feel and um, it's okay to, as men, it's okay to cry and it's okay to do these things because a lot of that is the reason people aren't doing it is they don't want to be judged. And, and uh, but you don't know what that person that just judged you does when they get in their car and they drive home and they might cry themselves all the way home but they just judged you for crying. So it's just like the, erasing the stigma is just huge in social media and, and the resources and finding the outlets like writing, just it's huge opportunities. I mean, he said, said he'd rather stay in jail than admit it, you know, and that's true for a lot oh, of people. Yeah. I bet. You know, they'd rather go through something harder that some other people couldn't imagine than, you know, say what they need to say it's like so hard like it, we're not we're not taught that we're not and it's hard like especially in like when you're really young like you're you're go all these emotions you know girls or guys you know puberty's hitting you like it's hard to know what anything is like but knowing early or being introduced to it early like can prevent so many things well, i think it's huge that you want to go talk at high schools and that you're going to go talk to your high school because i think that that right now that's such a pivotal age i mean our aunt was just telling us a story that with all these vapes and this kind of stuff uh the high school that her that our uh cousin was supposed to go to some kid just brought like a bunch of vapes to school but they were all infused with heroin and he just started handing them out and the ignorance with kids is like oh i'm gonna vape because it's cool but like i mean i smoked a lot of weed growing up in high school and like you used to be able to just you'd have your dealer and you could go smoke it. And now it's like, really? you can't buy it from a private party because you have no idea what the hell it is. <laughs> you have no idea what's there. 
and uh you know in our state in washington it's legal so if you want it you go to the dispensaries um or the the recreational shops but it's just it's such a different world and now and um it's just uh yeah i just i fear for the ignorance of the generations so knowledge is key we'll part of it okay we're we're moving (laughs) no i see i mean two things to touch on that if you you said is uh both you guys said is that i mean asking for help i look at my brother i mean someone that's something i mourn with every day someone actually my dad struggles with that a lot because he's like that old school guy mentality he's like someone would actually take their own life then live a life like it's and you know i i I mean we all deal with that question you know it's like yeah like you it's that bad instead of asking for help and you talk about the the medical um when we my mom called to get him a therapist um Mm -hmm. that next day when he said he needed help um which was probably just like two weeks before he took his own life and because of covid which happened like this was so he passed away july 24 2021 so a year and a half after covid and they said the next therapist appointment with his like good insurance was like six months away and he ended up taking his life two weeks later so you know the, the, the help's not there it's not there timely uh you know and the big resentment I had against COVID during COVID is my friends were dropping faster than COVID. People were COVID, you know what I mean? Even before my brother. Um, so I was like, we can't go help someone. If I can go to a casino or a strip club, if I can't go to a meeting, I can't go to church, I'm just like everywhere. There's a frustrating time. Um, What's really essential. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, I literally, I went to a casino with my friends in Connecticut and then uh, it like hit me. I was like, it was like 4th of July, the beach and casino, the beach was packed. I was like, wait, I can't go to my AA meeting. I can't go to the gym, like, take care of myself. Like, this is, you know. But to think about him taking his life, you know, I I think, sadly, I can relate to him more than anyone in my family is that I just understand not so much the suicidal part. Um, there was times I would have been probably okay if it ended. Um, it was so bad. But I, I didn't want that for myself. Um, I felt like there was more. But I could relate to the not wanting to ask for help, you know, and I get why he sat there and, you know, and he was like, he tatted up like my height, but like bigger, broad dude. Like he was a manly man. Like he'd call me the little soft. He would cry. Like, you know, so he was the one to not ask for, you know what I mean? I, I, no, nothing's wrong. We don't need to talk and just keep walking. Um, and he made a joke actually. Uh, and I'll never say he's an alcoholic, was an alcoholic, whatever, but walking into my one year sobriety, he actually came to my, he came to my first year, he came to my two year sobriety right before he passed away. And as we walked in, he looked at my mom and dad. He's messed he's funny like me, like messed up stuff. He looked at him and was like, Can I raise my hand when I have to introduce myself and say, Hi, my name, I'm an alcoholic, but I'm not a fucking quitter. And I was like, Oh man, and my mom was like oh. I was like cracking up. I was like, my boy. But uh, <laughs> you know, it's true though. Like people don't want to quit. You don't want to be called a quitter. Uh, I think alcohol is harder to say I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. Not to judge anyone, but I've been both by terms. And like, it's okay to be like, yeah, I shouldn't be doing drugs. I'm a drug addict. Be like, I'm alcoholic. You're basically going to be judged the rest of your life if you ever decide to drink again. So that was a huge weight for me. Um, I think I struggled with that for a while. Uh, no, it's a hard stigma because me, my my friend that got sober off drugs, he we joke about it a lot because. Uh, you know, I don't like to call anyone out particularly, but like just people we grew up with, whether how close they are or far away, but you know, we went through that. 
like I said, we're very judged in a small town. Oh, they do heroin or opiates or ooh, and it's like, you know, we've gained our good name back. Uh, not that we really care what people think, but for our families and to do the right thing. But then you look at the same people or like their kids or whatever, and it's like they're 32 now here doing alcohol and coke every night, and that's so, like okay. You know, it's like that's a fun, it's cool, but it's like. You know, you're putting, I've talked to my parents about this. You put in, you just want to talk about anyone. That was like, you know, it's just crazy that I can't just do a line of heroin off the table, but everyone could drink beer. Like, it's still poison. Like, you know, when you look at my brother, like a perfect, on the exterior, perfect life. What else do you want? Money, car, girl, and, you know, but because of alcohol, is you're trying to solve your problems. Bad. All right. Well, I guess one of the last things um do you have anything that you want to just leave our listeners with that you haven't already covered or something that you really want to reinforce that that they take from this um honestly it's what my book life on life's terms is going to be is the format kind of i learned um and it's not even about recovery it's called think like a monk by jay shetty um open my eyes yeah let my eyes to all like spirituality and uh why I realize it's everyone. So it's just because it's talked about how he was a, a, you know, a monk, which not a lot of people relate to, but he relates it to a normal life, like how you can meditate a little bit, a couple minutes a day. And that's where I started to learn, like, okay, you know, I can, I can make myself feel better every day through healthy habits, you know. Have faith, have hope. Uh, your story is not over. Um, usually when I, through my whole story, you could probably tell every time I thought it was over, a lot of good things were about to happen. Um, so hold on tight. So what's the best way for people to reach you? Uh, so my Instagram, like I said, I'm rebuilding that. It's uh, get lifted with three Ds. Um, and then my TikTok is probably the easiest one uh, and the most widespread. Uh, and that's recovery, John, or at get lifted. Well, we just want to, um, I guess, say thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your vulnerability. We appreciate you. We appreciate your story um, and the pain and loss that you've suffered. I know that uh, it's going to resonate with a lot of people. Uh, not only have you been uh, surrounded by substance abuse, you've, you know, you've beat it yourself. Um, so again, like, you know, Dominic said, we're proud of you. And um, yeah, thank you so much for being here. It's been very it's been much appreciated. I feel like your story is uh, very important for people to hear. But uh, this has been another episode of the Final Fix podcast. Uh, we just want you to remember that you are not alone and uh, we love you. If you or anyone you know are struggling with addiction, please reach out to the National Substance Abuse Hotline at 1-800-662-4357 for additional help. And remember, you're not alone.